Okay, well, uh, as uh, Richard said, we are about to begin a new series, and, and in some sense, that has been um, triggered by the visit at the end of this month of Robbie Dawkins. Now, very few of you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, uh, will have heard from, of him, but he's actually a vineyard pastor. Um, he ministers in a, a, a really sort of a downtown area. Uh, and uh, we heard him a couple of years ago at our National Leaders Conference, and he's really a, a, a wonderful communicator. He has this winsome style. He's very, he's very real, he's very honest, but also he has the most wonderful stories. And his big thing is training and equipping. And, uh, you know, we, we are all about training and equipping in the vineyard. It's not just about, you know, the, the staff getting to do the works of the ministry. We believe the scripture uh, is clear about this, that God intends us all to be involved in doing the works of ministry. Let me just give you a little taste, just a brief taste of Robbie Dawkins, and then we'll get into the message. Thanks, sir. Thanks, Matt. So he's coming on February, the Sunday, February the 23rd. He'll be here in the morning, and then uh, he's off to do the Soul Survivor Supernatural Conference, which I spoke at last year, and then he's doing the New Wine Leaders thing in London, but we've managed to nab him, and he's coming back on the Tuesday evening and the Wednesday evening, and we'll do a full-blown sort of service thing at 7.30, and uh, it really is one to tell your friends and bring them along. He, he is a very, well, you saw, there's, there's something about him. Uh, he's just very real. I'm looking forward to that. Now, because we were able to persuade Robbie to swing by here and, and, and share a few thoughts and what have you, that started us thinking about the ministry of the, ministering the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that we've always done right from the first. We've always said we are people who will preach the gospel, who will care for the poor, and will minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we do a great job, and Linda and the team, uh, and our ministry team, you all do a great job. But, but it felt like we, we were being asked by God to go to a new level. And so as we think about that, we inevitably start thinking about the Holy Spirit. You know, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the nature of our partnership with the Holy Spirit? And so that's what we're going to talk about over the next couple of days. And today I want to speak particularly about the Holy Spirit himself and about the Trinity. That's always a challenging thing to do. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads again, and I'm going to pray, and then I'll have a bash at this. Lord God, we want to say thank you. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who empowers us. You are the one that comforts us. You are the one that leads us into all truth. And Lord, I, I, I confess to a, a, a sense of inadequacy as I come to this topic, because how can the ant describe the elephant? Lord God, I feel but an ant before you in all of this. But I pray, Lord God, that uh, what I say will help, uh, but perhaps more than that, it will cause faith to rise up. Build your faith in us, Lord God. So come, Holy Spirit, and help me to communicate in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, having said what I've just said, there probably isn't a church in the land that wouldn't sort of heartily agree and not, yeah, of course, well, you know, we're Christians, so therefore it's all about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But all too often the Holy Spirit is consigned to um, a little stained glass image or something like that. But the truth of the matter is that the Holy Spirit uh, is, is the very source of all the power and the ability and the grace and the creativeness that the church employs today in order to make Christ known. Uh, he, he is, in one sense, sadly, an untapped resource in the church. 
a, a power that we are blissfully ignorant of or unaware of. Uh, I, I have to tell a story about uh, Chris Birch Evans, who may be here, I can't, can't see him, but I've got the lights in my eyes, but Chris Birch Evans heads up um, the, the St. Albans Education Project in this region, and uh, that's an ecumenical schools project, but he and his family attend this church. And he tells a wonderful story about when he was a boy, a kid, he used to go and play in the shed, and you know, I love sheds, I can really get that. And one of the things in the shed was this old Second World War bomb. And, you know, it was, who knows how it got there, but he used to play with this, he used to sort of heave it around the garden and play, you know, soldiers and all this kind of stuff. Well, a show-and-tell day came uh, uh, around at school, and he took this bomb to school with him, <laughs> and they had to evacuate the building. It was live ammunition. And, uh, boy, did he get, he got a real shellacking, you know. But he, all that time, you know, he'd been t chucking it around in the garden. He'd actually, I think I'm right in saying, he actually started trying to hit it with a hammer, you know. And it was a, a live round, you know, a fairly substantial thing. And so when he took it to school, they recognized that it was, um, you know, it was for real. And they, they had to call in a bomb disposal unit and evacuate the school. You know, he was a hero with all the students, you know, because they got a day off, but the teachers thought he was an idiot. <laughs> But you know, here we have, we are as a Christian church, like every other Christian church in the land, you know, we honor the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we invoke his presence, we ask him to help us. And yet little do we know quite whom we are dealing with. So let's spend a little time thinking about the Holy Spirit and, uh, and see if we can't uh, cause some faith and expectancy and uh, appreciation to rise up within us. So the Holy Spirit is, is part and parcel of the Trinity. Christians believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three. One God, but in three personalities, and yet even that doesn't express it. Theologians have wrestled with this concept through the centuries. St. Patrick, patron saint of Ireland, he, he famously used the shamrock as, as a, uh, a little kind of indicator, uh, as a little teaching aid. And he, he spoke of the, the three leaves that make up the shamrock. Each leaf is, is separate, and yet they are one. And somehow the, the combination of the three leaves make the one more. Then, of course, there was, uh, there's been other attempts. Uh, I've heard it described as, the Trinity described as a, as a three-legged stool. And uh, I don't know whether you realize this, but three-legged chairs and stools are far more stable than four-legged. Uh, Fliss and I, a few years ago, we used to keep a little boat on the Thames and sort of have days out on it. And whenever we went out to, you know, periodically buy a new pair of garden chairs, you know, from wherever, Tesco's or whatever, we would always look out for the three-legged ones. Because it didn't matter how uh, rough the bank was, when you put a three-legged chair down, it's stable. But if you've got these four-legged things, you know, designed for patios and try to put it on the bank side, before you knew it, you were tipping over the side and into the river. There's something about a three-legged stool, there's, there's, it's a perfect design, actually. It's a perfect design. It works really well, so simple, and yet works really well. But you take one leg out and suddenly you've got problems. I think probably one of the illustrations I like the most, and you may have a favorite if you've been a Christian for a while, is the whole um, illustration around water. What's the, the chemical um, code for water? Somebody earn a brownie point. 
H2O, thank you very much. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Now, now when you think about water, it, it's, it is an extraordinary element. It's, it's you know, a life-giving element, of course, and if anything, we've got too much of it at the moment. You know. But that being the case, water, if you freeze it, it changes. It becomes something very different. It becomes ice. And apart from putting ice in your, your cold drinks on a hot summer's day, yes, they will come back. Ice you can use to build a home, an igloo. You can skate on it like at the Olympics. You can, uh, you can race cars on it as they do in Sweden. Uh, it, it's very hard, very substantial, and of course very cold. And very different to a glass of water. At the other extreme, you know, and H2O is still the chemical composition of ice, but at the other extreme, if you, if you take steam, again, each droplet is H2O, that again is entirely different to ice. That is, is hot to the point of being dangerous. And yet there's extraordinary power encapsulated in steam. You know, many of you all know that at the end of the, you know, the, the 19th century, this nation was built upon its, its industrial might, and its industrial might was powered by steam. Trains, of course, but great big beam engines that drove the factories and, and, and produced goods. And we went and conquered the, the world. We were the greatest power, a great empire. And that was, that was all driven by, by steam engines and steam ships. And, and, and this, this power enabled us to do extraordinary things. A lot of it for good and some of it for not so good, it has to be said. But this, this strange sort of ethereal thing has extraordinary power. But it is oh so different to a glass of water or a little brook in the Lake District, and oh so different to the ice one finds in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and yet they are all H2O. So I like that one. There is a problem, which I haven't got time to go into, but, but the, the problem with that story is that, that actually each thing exists independently. The ice can't be steam at the same time, can't be running water. And that's where it breaks down in terms of an illustration of the Trinity. Because God, the Holy Trinity, exists all at the same time. There's actually a heresy, which is no longer popular, but was popular in its time, where theologians said, well, one moment God's the Father, and then a bit like Superman changing in a kind of a, you know, in a telephone box, he's God the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's God, you know, the Son. Uh, no, it, it's not sequential. God, the Holy Trinity, is not sequential. But what I'm at pains to try and communicate is that there is this, this extraordinary connection between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we worship a Trinitarian God, as do every classic Christian. And it wasn't actually until the, third, the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea, that the theologians began to thrash out what they actually thought. Up until that point, it had been more of a functional thing. Christians from the earliest of days recognized that as they interacted with God, as they sought to do his will, as they sought to be the church, as they sought to make Christ, they were aware of God in his three forms. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, the first reference one might make is, is in, in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus himself, 
says in the Great Commission, let's just throw that up on the screen, uh, Matthew 28, verses 18 to the end. If you've got a Bible, turn with it, or if you're using a Blackberry or an iPhone, please turn up, it's on the screen though. And Jesus says this, he says, <coughs> all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, excuse me, <coughs> therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There we are, a Trinitarian formula for baptism, as Jesus commissions his disciples to carry on the work. And, and in John's gospel, you know, he says to them, he says, I, look, I know you're upset, I know you're sad about the fact that I'm going now to be with the Father, but do not worry. The Holy Spirit himself is coming. The Holy Spirit, who in other scriptures is, is referred to as the, the, the promise of the Father, the gift of the Father. The Holy Spirit who is referred to in, in, in the minor prophets like Joel as, as God himself coming among us and dwelling within us. This thing that the prophets had longed for but never seen. You have far more even as you sit there than Moses or Elijah or Elisha. You have God's presence dwelling within you if you're a follower of Jesus. Extraordinary thing. So the Christians, the early Christians were aware of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, or their, their theology lagged behind it. Another little text, I love this one. This is a beautiful, a little blessing of Paul's in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And, and you know, as he often does, he begins with a greeting, he begins his letters with a greeting and finishes with a blessing. And this blessing in 2 Corinthians is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Gosh, I feel, I feel God's breath upon that even now, even as I'm standing here share, reading it. In fact, I, I tell you what, just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and put your hands out just as if to receive something. I'm gonna pray this over you. There's some breath on this. Get ready to receive. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You sense that? Do you sense his presence? That's the dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit. And his presence is power. Thank you, Lord. Remain with us, Lord God. Remain with us. Okay, amen. So in terms of the early church's experience of the Trinity, and good theology always comes out of experience. You know, it's fun to play mind games, but good theology always comes out of experience. It's, it's men and women wrestling with the intellectual 
implications of stuff that they are seeing and happening around them. And the church was, was, was chasing that all the time. The early church was remembering what Jesus did, was trying to write down what he said and what he did, but all the time they were interacting with one another and with the Holy Spirit who was present and evident and in their midst. And I was playing around with these three words during the week, identity, uh, can we just throw that up, thank you. Identity, identical, and identified. And let me just sort of, just read this out. That the early church realized that Jesus' identity was that of God. They'd known him as a friend, as a teacher, as somebody they'd followed along, dusty roads of Galilee. But as time went by, and as God began to reveal himself to them, and as Christ began to share his heart with them, and as they saw the way he lived, and they heard the words he spoke, and then saw the way he died, they realized that they were dealing not just with a man, but with God himself. And there were glimpses last week. We had David Rigby here, didn't we, talking about Martha. Did a great job, I thought. Catch it on the, the podcast if you missed it. But did a great job there. And, and, and there was that wonderful moment at the, the tomb of Lazarus where Martha, not Mary, but Martha, the activist, the washer-upper, the cleaner of homes, the housekeeper. It was Martha who comes with this, uh, with this creedal statement. She says, I believe that you are the Christ. And it's, it's a wonderful moment. It's wonderful that she gets it. And of course, earlier on in another part of the scriptures, they're walking along the road and Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And various ideas are put forward, but it is Peter who comes out with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God himself. There are these wonderful moments of clarity, but then all too often, as it happens to you and I, we kind of get it, and then it suddenly falls, slips through our fingers, and we're, we're back in struggling with our everyday experience of life and faith and all the rest of it. But the early church, they realized that Jesus' identity was that of God, God the Father, but he was not identical with God. He was not identical with God. And then with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was identified with God quite clearly. The Holy Spirit, as he worked among them, as he performed miracles, signs and wonders, confirming the words about Jesus, they realized that, that the Holy Spirit was identified with God and with Jesus. There was an intimate relationship between the Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the Son. And yet again, he was not identical to either. There was this extraordinary dynamic going on. And so the church wrestled with this and was anxious to, 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 to do honor and to worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You know, as I've been thinking about this, as I've been preparing this, this little mini-series, uh, another thought, a random thought initially came into my mind, and I, I started, I read something uh, uh, by, uh, or I saw something on, on TED by a woman called Brené Brown. Some of you have seen her on the TED Talks, uh, 8 million hits. It's probably one of the most popular ones. Who's seen that Brené Brown thing? I mean, it's just about vulnerability. It's just wonderful. But she says in that, and it's, no, this isn't rocket science. You probably would have said it if, if, if you thought of it, and maybe you have said it. But she said there, that there are two elements that are absolutely fundamental to the human psyche and nature and, and the human well-being, and one is love and the other is acceptance. 
And I was thinking about that, and I thought about other things I'd read and heard and things that I've experienced in my life, and I was at a, a, a further word to that, significance. I think to, 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 to build healing and wholeness in us, that God works in us an acknowledgement of his love and his kindness towards us, um, the, the acceptance that knowing Christ brings, and the significance that the Holy Spirit uh, brings to our lives. You know, when we were talking a little while ago about um, sharing our faith and what have you, we were talking about, and we've used this many times, this example, we, we say it is God's, God the Father who's, who's, who initiates this grand rescue mission, which we call you know, salvation. He initiates this community. It's, it, it's an outpouring of his love. It says in the scriptures, God is love, God the Father meets that love need that we have deep within us. And how does this sovereign God reveal himself to us? But as father, and not just father, but as Abba father, there is this dynamic, isn't there, of, of intimacy. And of course, as followers of Jesus and, and vineyard followers of Jesus, we have a, a high value on intimacy and in worship. We, 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 we see it as being important and, and key to effective uh, worship, coming into that place of, of meeting with God in worship and bowing down in love and adoration and thanksgiving. But that love thing is initiated by him. We love God because he loved us first. And he, he reveals himself to us as our father. And he calls us son. And he calls us daughter. It could be anything. But that's how he reveals himself to us. The love quotient, the love need, the love gene is met in God the Father. Now please don't put too much weight on this. This is Chris's Chris reflections or whatever. But then when we start thinking about acceptance, if love is one of those needs that we, we find fulfilled and met in, in, in the gospel through God the Father, then when we start thinking about acceptance, it is Christ who works that for us. It is Christ, as he opened his arms upon that cross at Calvary, so he embraces the world, he embraces us. And what does he do? He, he's, he's like an elder brother, a good one at that, who takes us by the hand and leads us home, uh, home to a place that is foreign to us, but we long to go home, and yet we're unsure of the welcome we will receive. And yet it is God, the, the Savior, it is Jesus, the Son of God who leads us into the Father's presence and says, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. It's an extraordinary thing. You know, one of the things that um, after a fair few years of ministry that I still am troubled by when I'm pastoring people and ministering and speaking to people is the amount of shame there is in the church. And you know what shame is? We've spoken about it before. Shame is where it's not sin. You know, if you are in sin, you need to deal with that. You need to repent of that. You need to ask God to forgive you. You need to ask God to fill you. You need to begin again. There's a responsibility. But, but shame is a result of stuff that we have no control over. Shame is the, the experience of a, of a little child in a playground when all the kids, for some extraordinary random reason, play with one another but won't play with them. I think I told you a few weeks ago, I was in Verulamian Park praying, doing my prayer walk, which I often do, 
And suddenly this great big yowl went up. I could see a couple of toddlers in the distance and a great yowl went up and two women were you know, somewhere away chatting, the mums were just chatting and they both, you know, as mums do when their kids cry, they, they spun on their heel and this little one came running with his arms up. Couldn't be more than three, three and a half. I've got a grandson who's three, I, I recognize the size. And as this little child ran up to the mother in floods of tears. He was screaming through his tears. She said she won't be my friend. She said she won't be my friend. It was heartbreaking. I don't know about them, I was in tears. She said she won't be my friend. And yet, as truth were known, as we go through life and we interact with colleagues at work or or friends at college or uni or whatever, we've all of us experienced rejection for no other reason than somebody just decided they wouldn't be your friend. Now when that happens, when we do the very best we can, and yet we are rejected for reason, we, we, we miss the mark in the eyes of someone, what comes upon us at that moment is shame. I am appalled at the number of religious people that we meet and I meet who are just weighed down with shame. Because someone somewhere along the line, someone in religious authority did a number on them and said that they would never this or they would never that or they, or, or you know, I, I know of, of, of terrible stories, terrible stories where priests have said to young boys in, in, in schools, you're damned. And you know what that was about? Because they left off a fire, a fire extinguisher during a playtime. Terrible, terrible things. And it seems that religious people often are even more susceptible to, change, to, to, to shame because we try so hard to, to, to be right, and yet we, it's, we just seem to fail. But the gospel is not about performance. It's not about being good or doing right. The gospel is about Christ opening his arms and dying for all. The lost, as Robbie Dawkins said. And not just those who misbehave. But the gospel is about you being okay with God. Whatever other people say about you. Whatever other people think about you. It is well with my soul, as the hymnist said, because now you're all right with God. And it's the love of Christ and the grace that he brings that lifts off shame. Suddenly you can breathe again. The last element in those three elements is significance. In the book of Ephesians, we learn that God has prepared works for us to do. God has something in mind. You may think, well, I'm not very creative and I'm not very clever and I didn't do too well at college and I've got this dead-end job and I, I work to live, not, not live to work. And, but, but, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm a nobody. Well, God thinks you're a somebody. First of all, God says you're my son, you're my daughter. That makes you somebody. I've, I've, I've said many a time before, when, when you walk down the street, the demons step into the gutter to let you pass. And you may just be having a bad old day, but they recognize who you are. But the reality is that God has things in mind for you to do, and it's the Holy Spirit who leads us into that place and empowers us. He, he, he leads us into that line, and it may be as simple as, as 
as just being a good neighbor and serving you know, twice a month on, on some ministry in the church community of which you, you love and are a part. You may be just a small cog in a wheel, but you're a cog in, in his wheel, in his machine, in his kingdom. Let's use that terminology. Your part may be small. Your part may be enormous. But every single one of us has something that God has in mind for us to do. It will always involve service. I was talking to a person I went out for dinner with a couple who may be in church today, I don't know, uh, during the week, and we were talking about about following Jesus. And, and all too often I hear people saying, well, I just want to soak, or I just want to take a time out, or I, you know, I've been burned, and I'm just... Listen, if you want to be close to Jesus, then you need to serve. Because Jesus is the servant king. You know, that wonderful imagery, the beginning of the Last Supper, you know, and we sort of celebrated that today, where he takes off his outer clothing and he, he dons the attire of a servant, a house servant, and he washes their feet. And he says to his followers, he says, you see what I'm doing? Now, do you really see what I'm doing? This is the very essence. This is the very nature of being a follower of mine. We become the servant of all men. So service is part of it. It will always involve service. And whether you're called to serve in high places or insignificantly and out of the eye of popularity and all the rest of it, we're called to serve. It's the very nature of what it is. But in that, we find significance. It may be a little thing. It may be a big thing. But as we, as we find our place in God's kingdom and as we serve by default, we find significance. Isn't it curious how in some ways, that's my point for sort of wandering off, going off piste, you know, is that God the Father seems to represent, at least to me, the source of all love draws us into his love. In Christ the Savior, we find the acceptance, the freedom from shame. We're okay with God. And in God the Holy Spirit, we find purpose, a place of serving in the family business. It's a wonderful thing. Well, I've got one more point, but I'm going to save that and use that next week because running out of time is as often the case. But let me just pray now. Why don't, we, why don't we all stand and we'll have the worship team come up as we do so. Lord God, I, I thank you for the opportunity of, of speaking of you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that uh, that which I've said will not confuse, uh, but that, Lord God, I suppose my heart's cry is that faith will rise up. Faith, Lord God. And Father, we pray that we would yield to you as God the Father, that we would embrace you as God the Savior, and that we would follow you as, as God the Holy Spirit our empowerer. Thank you, Lord. And everyone said, Amen.